Good Night Winchester. I'm your host, Lance Gunner Wines, and this is yet another humble episode of Late Nights with Lance, Winchester's favorite and only late night talk show. And this is the moment that we've all been waiting for, right? You and me both. This is truly the moment that we've all been waiting for. This is the grand finale, the epic conclusion, the bittersweet ending to the Pittsburgh special, right? This is the third part or the third period of the Pittsburgh special. It's going to be the conclusion to the story, wrapping up this uh, this saga uh, that shares the, the tale of visiting Pittsburgh and going to a football game with my best friend and his family. Uh, and this conclusion has been a long time coming, right? And um, for some reason, this has probably been the most difficult episode that I've ever recorded. And it's it's not because of its emotional weight or, you know, the uh, complexity of the information. It's truly about the delivery. And I've had so much difficulty or, or so many problems thinking of how to deliver this episode and actually trying to make it good content, right? Like, that's my problem. I think I, I, I might have gotten a little bit too big for my britches in the last few weeks, which is kind of crazy. But I'll just give you an idea of what I'm talking about. So, you know, this episode or the Pittsburgh special as a whole is telling the story of one day in November of 2021, right? It's the story of going to a football game on November 20th of 2021 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It was Heinz Field uh, to see the UVA Cavaliers play the Pittsburgh Panthers. And so it's basically, you know, the first episode is is sort of context or backstory about my friendship and my relationship with Hunter uh, and meeting his family. The second episode is the morning of the game, you know, in the tailgate that leads you all the way to us going into Heinz Field. And that's where it leaves off. And it's sort of like a cliffhanger where this episode should be about entering Heinz Field, visiting all that there is to see inside, and then actually attending the game, and then ending the episode with coming home, right? It should be a very simple, hey, we walked into the stadium, we saw this, that, and the other. We watched the game. Here's what happened during the game. And then we had dinner and went home. But for some reason, I've had difficulty sharing that part of the story. And, I, you know, a part of me thinks that it's just, it's not good content, right? It's not good. Uh, it's not a good story to share. Or it's not that it's, you know, it's not very significant. It's not necessarily exciting. There's no there's no conflict, right? That And that's sort of what drives a lot of my stories is that there are a lot of conflicts in my life, right? I, I have conflict with a lot of people, with a lot of things, with a lot of ideas. And this story is, you know, there's no, uh, there's no issue that needs to be resolved. There's no, um, you know, there's nothing that needs to be overcome or anything like that. It's just, it's me having a great time. And, the, the issues with that are, one, I should be able to talk about being happy, right? I mean, just straightforward, plain and simple. I should be able to sit back and relax and talk about good days. And not only should I be able to talk about good days, but people should want to hear about my good days just as much as they like to hear about my bad ones, 
You know, I know that people love uh, the story, my conflict stories. People love stories about fights or about disagreements or miscommunication or relationship issues, romantic issues. People love that shit, right? Because my the conflicts in my life are very uh, hyperbolic, right? They're very exaggerated, I guess. Um, you know, they're, they're superlatives. Uh, it, truly, everyone experiences conflict, but the conflicts in my life you know, they, they may, if you look at them with certain perspective, just be like everyone else's conflict. But I look at things as, you know, like they're principle. I look at things through the lens of principle and it's not what happened. It's why it happened. And people like that analysis because then they take my analysis and they apply it to their life. And they say, well, you know, I also experienced these conflicts and Lance is going into great detail about what he's feeling and why. And so maybe I need to take a look uh, at what I'm experiencing and and consider that what he said is also what these people are, are doing or feeling themselves. And also they're exciting as shit, right? Like some of my stories are hilarious. Uh, and I am fully aware of that. And I know a lot of people, when they first meet me, think that they're made up. They think that I'm lying or exaggerating or, you know, I'm fluffing up a story to make it sound good. Uh, and then people who get to know me for a few weeks are like, okay, this shit happens to Lance literally all the time. This is truly his life. Um, and you know, so when I talk about the good things in my life, there are no conflicts, right? It's not, I can certainly sit down and analyze the good things that happened to me and why I appreciate them. But sometimes I just want to tell the story and there's a happy ending. And that is shocking to some people and kind of disappointing to others, right? And that sort of sucks that my happiness is disappointing to some people because they get so much joy or excitement or thrill or whatever from my suffering. So that's that's one issue. And, and I, I, you know, sort of accept that and, and, you know, bring harm on myself for other people's entertainment, right? But the other aspect is I'm looking at things as content, right? And notice I said the word content already, uh, and that's part of the issue. You know, the first issue is, hey, I'm actually, I have a good story to tell. People are like, oh, okay, well, you know, where's the lesson in the good story? You know what I mean? The good stories are applying the lessons I learned from the bad stories, just so everyone knows. But the other part that, like I said, is I look at things, I look at these stories as content. Right. And so I, I look at this story and I say, well, I know that some things in my life are going to make for great content, like the bar exam story. I know people love those. I, I can see the episode analytics on Spotify and I can see that people fucking love the bar exam stories. Right. They, it's information that isn't common knowledge. You know, it's it's not well-known information. I also have a unique perspective on things and People are interested in both just the, I guess, the idea of law or the idea of lawyers, but also people are interested in my life and my own choices. So I know people like those episodes. People like, you know, and luck, and I put one of those episodes together, the most recent one, uh, together with my Suki story, right? And people love those fucking stories of me falling in love with strangers and like the crazy, you know, hyper romantic um, rendezvous I have with people. You know what I mean? Like, because that's not normal, right? I mean, I admit that it's not normal. It's not common. People don't just fall in love 
with strangers and people certainly don't fall in love with strangers, like love at first sight. And then somehow the universe keeps giving them interactions with those people. And I don't know if it's by grand design or just happenstance, or I am just good at making choices, but I do seem to be in the right place at the right time for a lot of things in life. You know what I mean? And so people love those stories. They love the bar exam stories. They love the random stranger stories. People love the Ivy stories, right? As much as people, uh, they know how much that weighs on me. They know how much uh, I actually put into that and talking about her and talking about our relationship and and whatnot. They know it it does put a toll, uh, take a toll on me and on my heart. Um, But people love those stories. And it's gotten to a point where because I've, I've grown more comfortable I can talk about those stories. I can talk about her. Um, it doesn't change the way I, I feel about her, but I've certainly grown more confident myself and more comfortable. And people love those stories because, again, they're unique. You know, everyone's relationship is unique, but my relationship with anyone is super unique, and my relationship with her is, you know, once in a trillion years. And people like to hear that shit, right? It's the same reason... People read The Notebook or people, uh, you know, watch A Fault in Our Stars is because these are like um, exaggerated, you know, superlative romantic stories. And some of them have conflict. Some of them have, you know, intrigue and, and they're all unique. You know what I mean? And so I look at my life and I'm like, well, I, I know when it's happening that it's going to make for a good story. You know what I mean? I can tell when I'm living in life that I'm like, wow, people are going to love this story because this doesn't happen to normal everyday people. I get that. Um, And so I look at this story in particular, the third part or the third period of the Pittsburgh special, and I say, this isn't the type of content my friends, my family, my fans, my listeners like. You know, this is happy, go lucky, hey, everything went right content. And that's rare in my life. And that's why it's hard for me to talk about it. But it's not content. You know what I mean? At the end of the day, it's not, I'm not making these things up. This isn't fiction. This isn't, you know, some sort of, you know, epic tale of grandeur that's trying to uh, appease or impress anyone. This is my life. It's not content. It's it's true. It's, it's biographical. It's nonfiction. And there's going to be chapters in history that are boring, right? There's going to be chapters in my life that aren't as exciting as other ones. And there's going to be pages or lines or whatever, you know, depending on how much time I guess I have that aren't going to be as exciting as the other ones. And for some reason in the last few weeks, that's been difficult for me to wrangle with. It's, it's been harder for me to accept, I guess, as the podcast has grown as the listenership or viewership or as the amount of interactions have increased, you know, it's kind of gone to my head where, hey, you know, people are expecting certain things from these episodes, you know, not just content wise, content quality, but, you know, audio quality and, and just the quality of product released. And I'm very happy with a lot of these episodes, certainly the last one, Learned Hand, I'm very proud of. And the original, you know, Pint of Good Karma, I'm very proud of that episode too. Those are my two favorites. Um, and of course the Dave Matthews band saga, but I get to an episode like this and it's like, well, I need to make this episode because it's the conclusion. It's the third part. It will bookend the Pittsburgh special. 
and we can move on from that. But I, I have to make it good too. And my conflict is, do I, you know, I want to make it good and I want it to compete with my other episodes in terms of success. But I also, I'm not going to, I refuse to lie or exaggerate to brandish this story and make it as exciting as the other ones. And that's my internal conflict is my, my moral compass, which prohibits me from lying is also forcing me to accept that this just isn't going to be as fun as the other episodes. And it, it doesn't have to be right at the end of the day. It doesn't have to be because it doesn't matter how fun this episode was. It's about how fun that day was. It's about how I enjoyed my time with Hunter and Ron and Camden and how much I love those guys. And it's about truly a good day, right? Truly, uh, that's probably my new favorite word, truly, truly a good day. And that should be enough for the people that listen because they love me, right? I have fans who listen because I guess they like my content or they think I'm interesting. I have people that listen because they try to, you know, build up like portfolios and files on me to use against me. I have people that listen just to keep tabs on me. And I have people that listen because they love me. And the people that listen because they love me should like this story because it's an example of me being happy, truly happy. And they know, the people that love me know how difficult that's been for me over the last few years. You know, it's today, as I'm recording this, this is my 10th, literally my 10th attempt at this episode. It is Saturday. Well, now it's Saturday, March 12th. It was Friday, March 11th, a few minutes ago. When I started, it was Friday, March 11th. And it was two years to the day from COVID closing school. It, I mean, literally, the things that happened on March 11th of 2020, I <laughs> went to uh, Legacy Tattoo in Wilmington, Delaware, saw my girl M. I got my big fire dancer and coffee ring tattoo on my right thigh. Uh, I remember driving to and from the tattoo studio, listening to Beach Ball by Dave Matthews, got the, got the tattoo, and as I walked out, I started getting emails from the school and each email was worse, <laughs> progressively worse to the point where they said, hey, because of, you know, this growing pandemic, this growing threat to humanity, we're closing our doors and you're going to have to be out by the end of the week. And I get back to my apartment and I see a vehicle parked outside of my apartment that's not mine and that's not my roommates. And I end up going on. Uh, what one could consider to be an, an epic car chase uh, to the likes of the Fast and the Furious. Uh, <laughs> and then I end up back at my apartment. We go to catch 202, pretty much me and, and the D-Law class of 2020. Um, and then, you know, I go listen to music in my car because I'm sad. And I have some negative interaction, some negative contact with Ivy, which, you know, that was my own stupidity. Uh, and then that's it. And that was two years ago to the day. And since that day, it's been hard for me to find happiness and joy. And anyone who knows me or loves me or has been in my life or even played witness to my life knows how difficult it's been for me to find happiness over the last two years. I've, I've been suffering, right? I have truly uh, I have been down 
And I mean, think about the things that happen, right? Like, obviously, I, I have I have not and probably will not ever get over my relationship with her uh, and how much I love her and how much I fucked that up. Uh, I won't ever get over the fact that my father passed away. I mean, that's going to, you know, stay with me for the rest of my life. Um, and I mean, that was, you know, January 9th of 2020. So two months later is when we had to move out of school. So I'll never get over my father and then, you know, COVID and then having to move out of my apartment and move back home with my folks and finish law school at home virtually. And then all the bar exams that I failed because they've been whooping my ass, dude. It's like, I'm going to fight these demons, but these demons have hands, dude. It's like each bar exam is like uh, Mike Tyson, Evander Holyfield, and Sugar Ray Leonard. And they're all just beating the shit out of me. Uh, And I'm out here, you know, tapping out. No moss, dude. No moss. And so, you know, the three bar exams I failed, the one I just took, um, dealing with other romantic issues, like trying to get back into dating, you know, dating Cleo for a little bit, and then her, you know, uh, jumping ship to California, all that, you know, dealing with, uh, I'm not going to name everyone (laughs) that's going to be on this list, but there are some people that would be a surprise to a lot of people uh, that have done some things that would also be surprising to a lot of people and to the point where I've, I've given up essentially, I I've pretty much closed the, the person that most people know me as is probably the most willing to give love, right? I'm probably the most loving person that most people know. I'm certainly, you know, very willing to open my heart to all people. And it's gotten to the point where not that I've become jaded or, you know, some, I don't know, I guess, I don't know what the word is I'm looking for here, but not that I, I've become necessarily jaded or, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Vexed? No, that's not the word I'm looking for. But um, I'm just like, I'm not willing, I've set boundaries for myself and I've, I've set limits and I've set expectations. And I tell everyone you know, I'm not willing to love again until I think that what that sounded like a Dave Matthews song. I could never love again so much as I love you. Where you end, where I begin is like a river going through. So take my eyes, take my heart. I need them no more. If never again they fall upon the one I so adore. Excuse me, please. One more drink. But um, it's grace is gone. You know, um, <laughs> one drink to remember, another to forget. How could I ever dream to find sweet love like you again? But truly, that I mean, that's a you know very sad song, and I connected obviously with with her. But I, I look at my life, and I look at these people in my life, and I say, why would I? You know, why would I open myself up and give people, you know, the best love that they'll ever receive? Truly, you know, the the best love that they'll get in their life, if they're not going to return that favor to me. I'm not going to give the best love someone is ever going to get if I'm also not going to get the best love that I'm ever going to get in return. And it's like, why would I, um, you know, why would, why would I try to build something with someone that I, I can't see myself loving as much as I, I love a ghost? You know, I, it's hard to imagine, but, it, you know, and I always say this, and I know that one of my friends, uh, you know, shout out to, to Stripes, um, she hates when I say this, right? Uh, Lauren hates when I say this, uh, but it's true. And it's like, I'm not going to open myself up to love and until I think that that person is at least half the woman that, 
you know, the the phantom, the ghost I that Ivy is. You know what I mean? Like, she gave me the best love of my life to this point. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that. And, you know, I'm not going to accept less than that. I'm not going to accept less than what she gave me because what she gave me was the best so far, the best of what's around. Um, and I always say that and I tweet that shit and, and then Lauren has a fit about it. But, um, you know, it's truly that that's one of the issues that has been holding me back this year. And, and people know that. And so, you know, dealing with losing her, losing my father, losing school, losing the bar exam, uh, dealing with dating, you know, terrible women in terrible circumstances who do terrible things. Um, and of course, you know, no one, everyone is guilty, right? It's like the movie, the watchman, you know, who, who watches the watchman? Everyone, nobody's innocent. Everyone's guilty. And I have my own issues, right? Uh, and obviously my issue is I hold people to a, a high standard that some people think is too high, but I don't think it's too high of a standard. I don't think it's an unrealistic standard because there's a real person that meets this standard because there's a real person that set this standard. You know what I mean? How can it be a too high of a standard or an unrealistic standard when there's literally a person alive that set the standard? Uh, but anyway... So dealing with with dating and romance and dealing with my family and money and other friendships that have fallen apart and been built back up, um, it's been hard to be happy. It has been fucking hard to be happy. And, you know, that's that's just life, I guess, you know, and I, I it shouldn't be that way, but it is. And so when I have like this great day in November of 2021 where I go to this football game with these this group of guys I'm like, wow, this is this is something I need to talk about because this is a day in the last two years where I, I could sit there, look at myself in the mirror and say, hey, I am happy and I'm still a good person because that's part of it, too. And I just saw this. I just saw this or heard about this in a podcast I listened to. So shout out to Ear Biscuits. Shout out to Mythical Entertainment, to Rhett and Link. But Link said that a big part of his growth uh, from being a devout Christian to the person that he is now, a hopeful agnostic, is he wants to be happy and be himself, but he he always felt guilty that, you know, he wasn't a good person or he was going against God in finding his own happiness. And now he says that it feels good to not only be happy, but realize that he is still a good person while he's happy. And that's that's what I've been trying to experience too, is I can be happy without it being at the expense of anyone or anything. And it, it took me so long to get here. Uh, and moments like that, moments like that with Hunter and with his family and moments, just talking to Hunter every day, make me realize I am happy. I can be happy and I can be myself and be happy. And it doesn't have to come at, no one has to lose their happiness for me to be happy anymore. And that was ultimately one of the issues, if not the the main issue, that led me to break up with Ivy in the first place, right? That was ultimately what led to me making that decision back in, in August of 2019 is I wasn't happy and I felt like the only way for me to be happy was for other people to, to sacrifice or suffer you know, it, it felt like it had to be at the expense of, of someone else. It was it was either us or them, me or them. And 
I felt guilty for that, right? I knew it was wrong. Certainly I knew that was wrong, but that's just how it was. And now I don't feel that way anymore. And maybe that's why I, I wish I could pick back up where I left off, right? But you you pay for what you get, you know what I mean? You can't just set something down and pick it back up a few years later and hope that everything's going to be okay. But, you know, you can you can be a hopeless romantic and and feel that way. So that's what this story is about. Sorry, that was kind of a rant and a tangent, but it felt good to get out, you know, and, and that's, I'm not going to say the word, I don't want to say the C word again, content, but, you know, I, I want to talk. And this episode, I could sit and give you a play-by-play of a football game. I could sit and, and spit out historical facts and, you know, athletic figures, <laughs> uh, but nobody wants to listen to that, right? If you want to know about the history of the Pittsburgh Panthers football program, go to Wikipedia, right? Type, you know, Pitt Panthers, University of Pittsburgh Panthers football, and it'll take you to the entire history with all of the, the names and dates and numbers you need to know. If you want to know about what happened at the football game specifically, go to ESPN, type UVA at Pitt, uh, you know, 11, 20, 21, and they'll have a play-by-play, they'll have the box score, they'll have all of the statistics. That's not what this podcast is about. This podcast is about me, dude. This is fucking late nights with Lance. This is late nights with motherfucking Lance. And like I said in my story the other night when I asked out that waitress who was engaged, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm Lance motherfucking Wines, dude. And and people people love me. And, <laughs> and I love me too. And I want to talk about me. I want to talk about I. I want to talk about number one, dude. Like Toby Keith said. You know, what I think, what I like, what I know, what I want, and what I see. I like talking about you, 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 usually, but occasionally, I want to talk about me. And that's what this is, and it feels good, and I feel like I've I've gotten my mojo, baby. You know, like Austin Powers, I feel like I've gotten my mojo. Um, and, and this story, this football game story, is, I don't know where it lies exactly on me getting my mojo back, whether it's the beginning or middle, but it's certainly, uh, it played a role in me feeling myself again, feeling human again. You know, and I feel like I do a lot of quotes and references and movie references and song references, but here comes another one. Uh, so buckle up, buckaroo. Um, there's a song, I'm trying to think of, oh, it's Jolene, the song Jolene by the Zach Brown band. So I highly recommend it. And... Zach Brown sings, he says, it's been so long since I've seen your face or felt a part of this human race, right? It's been so long since I've seen your face or felt a part of this human race. And I remember the first time I heard it, it reminded me of my, my grandfather, granddaddy, Bill, uh, who's my, my mom's father. He passed away back in 2013. And, you know, it reminded me of him. And it's like, ever since his, his loss, his death, I never really felt like I belonged anywhere. And certainly, you know, when Paul passed away back, you know, uh, July, what was that, July 30th of 2016? Yeah, I always, I just felt that way. And I feel like I have this very, very human, but very sad tendency that when I experience such great loss, because I feel emotion at such a high level, I feel unhuman 
You know, it's not that I feel subhuman. I don't feel beneath humanity. I just feel like I'm, I'm not a part of it. I'm out of humanity. And, you know, like I said, it's been so long since I've seen your face or even felt a part of this human race. And it, I can't tell you an exact moment where I was like, I feel human again, but I honestly, I, th- I think I can now that I, I think about it. And of course this is a, this is an, an ad to go back to the DMB saga, but I think, I honestly think it was when I was, you know, front row at that show with Bob at, um, at Meriwether, right? I feel, I honestly feel like being front row and just everything going right. And I'm not going to get into too much detail because I, I go into heavy detail in the episode. But the fact that I, I went in with no expectations because I didn't want to be dis- I didn't want Dave to disappoint me. And I didn't want to associate disappointment with Dave. And the fact that I went in with no expectations and then everything went literally perfectly. That's when I was like, okay, this is the beauty of humanity. This is this is the beauty of the human experience. And so that was probably the moment where I was like, okay, like I definitely feel like I'm, I'm getting back into, into who I am, you know, back to, back to basics. And then when I'm sitting there with Hunter and and Ron, his father and Camden, his brother, I'm like, you know what? Again, this is one of those moments that everything's going right and it just feels good. And so that's what this episode's about. You know what I mean? That's what this whole story is about. And that's what life should be about is about moments that just make you feel good. And there are moments that suck. There are moments that make you feel bad, and that's okay. But you can only you can only suffer in the bad moments because you know what it's like to feel the joy in the good ones. And it, it took me a long time to get to that point, right? That's why I can look back at these things and sure they're negative. Everyone's like, oh, you know, like there's always there's there's a negative connotation with past relationships or exes or past significant others. Or, I mean, you know, certainly deadbeat fathers or or death or whatever. There's negative connotations, but nothing is inherently positive or negative, right? We assign meaning, we associate meaning as humans. And I don't associate all of those negativity or, or all those negative things with those things. They just, they're a part of life and they're a part of who I am. And that's why I talk about them freely. And people have a problem with that, right? And if you have a problem with that... I can tell you exactly where to put that complaint. You know what I mean? Because like I said, it's, you know, do no harm is the rule. Do no harm. And I, I'm living my life and I'm finding enjoyment and happiness again after all these years. And I'm not harming anyone in finding my happiness. Uh, you know, like I said, I, I am happy and I am a good person. And if you take a, if you have an issue with that, that's in, that's because you feel like your happiness comes at the expense of someone else. That's why you have an issue with it. But anyway, I'm going to take a quick break uh, and then get into the story. I appreciate everyone listening to this rant, this ramble about where we are in the world. Um, you know, I want to thank everyone for tuning in for, for, you know, my friends, my family, my, the one who stole me away. Um, people who listen for whatever reason, you know, thanks for being fans thanks for being a friend and and i appreciate that that people care so i love you all dearly i'll be right back and we'll jump into this motherfucker all right peace all right and we're back so again thanks for tuning in thanks for putting up with with me (laughs) thanks for putting up with me honestly 
Uh, so I'm actually going to get into the story now. Again, this isn't going to be a long story. It's probably going to be a long episode just because I can make anything long. Um, except for, never mind. I'm not going <laughs> to, I'm not going to make that joke, right? I, I'll contact my doctor. Um, but, <laughs> but, um, yeah, anyway, so into the story. Uh, so, you know, we leave the tailgate, we leave our worldly possessions behind, uh, in the vehicle and we enter Hinesfield. And again, I had been to Hinesfield one time before, right. To see, the University of Delaware fighting blue hens when they visited uh, University of Pittsburgh back in, what was that, October of 2019. So it had been two years, uh, a little over two years. And it was a fun day back then, right? I feel like I talked about that a little bit in another episode, um, probably in the Spring Broke episode. But I had not been to the other side of Heinz Field. For some reason, I don't remember uh, being on the side that we were in. And now we ended up sitting on the visitor side for the game. So it was the, uh, UVA side, right? Which is fine with me cause I'm from Virginia. So it was whatever. Um, but it seemed to be the home side for the Steelers, right? Cause this is also the home of the Pittsburgh Steelers. So we enter the stadium and we enter the gate, right? The gold gate or whatever it was. Um, which, <laughs> You know, it's pretty cool because I, I thought about making this episode themed like heaven, hell and purgatory where you enter the gates. And it's like abandon all hope. Ye who enter here. Uh, but, you know, I didn't do that. But that's OK. So we enter the the uh, inside of the stadium and they hand you your terrible towel. Right. Because even though it's the University of Pittsburgh, uh, it's a Pittsburgh tradition to have the terrible towel, which I'm sure that Hunter knows the story behind that. But I'm going to assume that the terrible towel, um, for those who don't know, it's, it's essentially like a yellow hand towel and like all the fans have them and you like wave them during the, the game. And it's sort of how you show your, your fidelity to the team. Uh, but it's, it is, it's a yellow hand towel or like a yellow dish towel. And I'm sure that that tradition, you know, and of course I don't know for sure, but my heart of hearts tells me it came from the fact that Pittsburgh and the fact that they're the Steelers are all, they were all steel workers, right? Everyone who lived in the city, they were steel workers. And so they worked at the, uh, steel mill, which I hate saying those words together, steel mill. And because my mind just doesn't, doesn't fuck with that for some reason. That's a big word for Elmo, right? That's a big word for Elmo. Uh, balsamic vinegar, you know what I mean? Um, but anyway, so I feel like all the, the fans, the gentlemen in the city, uh, were, were steel workers that worked in the steel mills. And they would get off of work and be covered in soot, right? Because you're smelting uh, iron ore to make steel beams or whatever they were making, but mostly beams. And so you're smelting and you're taking the iron ore and you're adding in other um, elements to strengthen the iron. So it's like steel, I think, is iron and cobalt together, right? Cobalt is another... uh, element. I'm pretty, I think it's an element, uh, but essentially there's like cobalt, uh, tools, which is based off of this because most, uh, tool companies come from Pittsburgh because that's where the steel is. Right. And you, you use stainless steel tools. Uh, but I'm pretty sure that they use iron and cobalt together to make steel and the smelting and the, and the soot that comes from, uh, the, you know, the fire and the, and the baking and all that. I'm not going to get into the process of what that is, um, leave soot. And so the men would be covered in the soot, the ash, everything from the, you know, the dust particles, all the cancer causing 
materials um, from the mill. And so they would maybe go to a game or whatever, wherever they went, and they would have these towels probably to wipe their hands and faces. And so I assume that they're like, hey, there's a football game in Pittsburgh tonight. Of course, it wouldn't be Sunday. I don't think they would work on Sundays. Uh, but maybe they did, right, before labor laws and before all that stuff, you know, in the early 20th century. Uh, but they'd be like, hey, there's a game tonight, Monday night football or Thursday night football. Let's go. Or maybe it started with the University of Pittsburgh. And so they were like, hey, it's Friday night. It's Saturday night. Let's go to this game. And they're like, well, I'm just getting off work from the mill. And they're like, dude, it's cool. They got towels. I don't <laughs> I don't know. Or like, hey, we have towels. So all the fans, you know, have their towels that they wipe their hands and faces to get all the the black soot off of. And then they go to the game and they wave the towel. And that's the terrible towel. And I don't know what the yellow, I mean, the yellow is the team color, right? Like both teams use a yellow or a gold to represent the team, but they use black lettering for the terrible towel because it would be the black, you know, dust that was covering their bodies and the inside of their lungs um, back in the day. So that's where I assume you're like, why would a team have a towel as like part of their identity and their culture? Because they're steel workers and they get dusty and so they have towels to clean themselves off. That's where I assume that's from. So you walk into the game or to the uh, the stadium, Heinz Field, and they hand you the Pitt Panther version of the terrible towel, uh, which is cool. And so, I, again, I'd been there before, but I hadn't seen everything. And this is going to be a little bit of history, but I'm not going to you know, uh, sit and focus on it. But the Steelers have won six Super Bowls, right? And they would have won a few more, but the Cowboys spoiled that for them. And the Cowboys would have won a few more, but the Steelers spoiled that for them. Uh, so it's kind of like a back and forth, you know, that's just how it goes. It's good rivalry, right? One that doesn't really exist anymore because they don't really play. You know, I'm not going to get into NFL scheduling or whatever. But anyway, um, the Steelers have won six Super Bowls. And like most teams, the majority of teams in the NFL, they display the Lombardi trophies in the stadium so that the fans who want to see the trophies can see them, right? Of course, the Lombardi trophy is the trophy that you win uh, or you're awarded when you win the Super Bowl. And it's made by, I'm pretty sure it's still made by Tiffany and Company in New York. It's some sort of silver. I don't know if it's sterling silver or whatever, but it's silver. It's a, you know, football on like a triangular prism pedestal. Very beautiful. And the Steelers have six of them, right? Well, they have them in these display cases that are, sort of like their pillars, you know, they're, I mean, cause you know, stadium an athletic facility, specifically a professional sports stadium is a large, heavy facility. So they have pillars that hold it up and inside the pillars are like these display cases for each Lombardi trophy. Of course, they're in chronological order from their first, which who gives a shit when the first one was to the last two, which I do know, uh, the last, <laughs> The last two, uh, I think it was Super Bowl 43. Hunter's going to correct me on this. 43 uh, was the Steelers defeated the Cardinals. Um, it was a great game. I remember watching that one. The Cardinals had, obviously, Larry Fitzgerald, who went to the University of Pittsburgh, in uh, one of the best wide receivers of all time. And I think they were, I don't know if Bruce Arians was the coach at the time, but I thought that Kurt Warner was the quarterback. I don't know if that's true or not, but I, I thought Kurt Warner, old man Kurt Warner was still the quarterback of the Cardinals at that time period, but it could have been someone else. Um, 
and then obviously, like I said, Larry Fitzgerald. But the Steelers won in Super Bowl forty three. Then the other one, the second to last, was Super Bowl forty, uh, which is my least favorite Super Bowl. Rest in peace. Okay, probably not my least favorite anymore because the Patriots Rams Super Bowl, which was just gross. Um, the best part about that one was the Maroon Five halftime show, which people still hated because people think it's cool to hate popular things. Um, but Super Bowl forty was the Steelers against the Seattle Seahawks, uh, you know, go Hawks. And this is the play where I believe that Ben Roethlisberger was down on the one yard line. And then he kind of pulled the ball out of his butthole, uh, and put it like over the goal line into the end zone. Like he was down by contact in my opinion. And the ball was, you know, underneath his chest because he was protecting it. And then when he was down, he like pulled it out uh, out of nowhere, like Harry Houdini and put it in the end zone. And they were like, well, the ball must've fell into the end zone when he was, when he leapt forward. And so they gave him a touchdown. Of course, you know, that game had a bunch of other great plays too. Um, one of those games had that like 99 yard return. Uh, anyway, the point is I didn't like Ben Roethlisberger doing that shit. Uh, I was rooting for Seattle. I'm a, I'm, you know, a closeted Seattle fan, uh, just like future. And so, yeah, and I was rooting for the Cardinals and the other ones. Again, I'm not a huge Steelers guy, right? Um, and I know that they would have had another trophy, too, if it wasn't for Aaron Rodgers. So rest in peace to that. Um, anyway, so, you know, it's cool to see these Lombardi trophies. I have seen, I think in my life, I've seen five Lombardi trophies prior to the six I saw in Pittsburgh. So I know the first one that I ever saw was um, it was the Baltimore Colts Super Bowl trophy. So this was, you know, back before they were the Baltimore Colts. And then in the middle of the night, they packed all their shit and got the fuck out of there and moved to Indianapolis. It was very traumatic. There's a documentary about it. I highly recommend. Um, So the Colts won the Super Bowl with Johnny Unitas as their quarterback and when the Ursay family moved the Colts from Baltimore to Indianapolis, they didn't take the Lombardi Trophy, and there was no way the city of Baltimore was giving that shit up. So they put it in a museum that's located in between M&T Bank Stadium, where the Ravens play, and Camden Yards, where the Baltimore Orioles played baseball. And so I went to that sports museum with Scarlett and her family back in like 2014, and they have like the Baltimore Colts exhibit there. And I got to see the trophy, which was pretty cool. I do highly recommend that documentary. It was an ESPN 30 for 30. I think it was like the band, uh, the band never stops or, or something like it's about the Baltimore Colts, uh, marching band that was devastated that the team moved and they continued as an organization until like, I don't even, how many years was it? Like 30 maybe 30 or 40 years later, uh, finally the Cleveland Browns relocated. I think it was the Browns relocated to Baltimore, became the Ravens named for Edgar Allan Poe's the Raven. Cause he was from Baltimore. Um, and then they were like, Oh, we have a team again. And then they won the super bowl, which is pretty cool back in 1999. Uh, and then the Browns were, uh, reestablished. Uh, I think it was in 2001, 2001 or 2003, something like that. So anyway, that was the first Lombardi trophy that I ever saw. There's a photo of me uh, pretending to hold it somewhere. Uh, I have to go find it. Uh, the other ones that I saw were the Washington. What's the right word here? Uh, I'm going to say Washington football teams uh, for Lombardi trophies, right? They've won four Super Bowls. They won. When was the 
Uh, when did they win? I don't think they won the one in between the Cowboys, uh, the two in 92, 93, and then uh, 95. They might have actually won that. No, that was that was Brett Favre, I think. Um, I think the Redskins, sorry, the God, I, it's hard not to say it. I think that the Commanders is what they're actually called now. The Commanders won the Super Bowl in, I think, 1991. And then the Cowboys won in 1992 and 1993. And then I think Brett Favre won his only Super Bowl in 1994. And then the Cowboys won again in 1995. And then that's that's when I was born, right? And uh, so the NFC East really dominated uh, football in the 90s. I mean, you know, plus there was, you know, the Giants. I don't know when LT retired, but uh, that would have been pretty crazy. Um, and of course, you know, <laughs> uh, then there was the Eagles who they, they eventually got theirs, right? You know what I mean? Anyway, so I've seen the four Washington Lombardi trophies, the one in Baltimore. Uh, there are two more in Baltimore now, but I, I didn't get to see those because I'm pretty sure they belong to the Ravens. And so I'm pretty sure they're at MT Bank Stadium, which I've been to. I visited MT Bank Stadium. Uh, when I saw Jay-Z and Beyonce perform, that was pretty cool. That was a good birthday gift. Uh, shout out to Scarlett for that one. Um, so yeah, that, so that was pretty interesting. And then of course, you know, I've seen the, the six, um, that are the Steelers. So that was always cool. You know, I, I, I sort of collect those memories because those are the only connections I have to the Super Bowls. I can't go back in time yet. Um, it's going to be crazy in like 40 years when I can go back in time and I, I show up like at my house right now and tell myself, hey, bro, before you record that sentence you're about to say, uh, just be aware you can go back in time now. It's going to be crazy. So I'm waiting for that to happen in like this weird time loop Avengers Endgame type scenario. It's not currently happening, but we'll see how that goes. Um, and so, yeah, so I got to see the Lombardi trophies. Then I saw an additional trophy, which was the 1976... Uh, college football national championship trophy, right? And I had never seen a college football national championship trophy. It wasn't my favorite one uh, that I like favorite style is what I mean by that. Nothing against uh, Pittsburgh, nothing against the bicentennial. Um, but my favorite design for the college football national championship trophy was the glass uh, football, which they used to use. I forget what they call it, the BCS it was just like the the bowl collegiate series, um, you know, Division One A, um, college football national championship, and it was a glass football that they put on this beautiful black stand. Um, I mean, it's it's a sight. And so they used to hand you the the glass football at the game, and then they would, I guess, mail you <laughs> the beautiful black uh, pedestal to put it on. Of course, now they have like a basically a Lombardi Trophy copy. Uh, for the college football playoffs, which it's pretty cool. Uh, but this one is essentially like a high school state championship trophy, uh, which, you know, I don't think there was as much money in college football back in the 70s as there was or as there is today currently. I mean, it's a, it's a you know, $100 million, maybe even a billion-dollar industry, uh, college football, right? Maybe even more so than the NFL, honestly. Um, but in the 70s, I mean, sure, there was, you know, the Pony Excess uh, down at SMU, Right. Shout out to Russ Potts of Winchester, Virginia, for funding that uh, and, you know, spoiling that. But whatever. So it's it's basically, you know, just a golden football on like a regular wooden stand with four gold columns. You know, a traditional trophy. I shared a photo of it. 
Um, but that being said, it was the first college football national championship trophy I'd ever seen. And that got me thinking, wow, Pitt won a national championship. How many other national championships have they won, right? Have they been a good team in the past? Have they always been garbage? And Hunter is just trying to make them sound good. So I looked it up and it was pretty interesting what I found. I know that, you know, I'm not going to get into all the details. I'm not going to pull out the facts and figures. Um, but I will tell you that they their first national championship was, or the one that they, I think they lost was in 1910. I think it was 1910. That might be the, either the first one they won or the first one they lost was 1910. I think they shared it with Harvard. Um, but then they won in 1915 and 1915, 1916, uh, 1918. So basically in the second half of the 1910s, the majority of the 1920s and the beginning of the 1930s. So they dominated in those, you know, three decades at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, and then they had another dynasty. Uh, I call it a dynasty later on when they won this national championship, which was, uh, 1976. And then they won in 1980 and 1981. Right. So I'm remembering these off the top of my head, but essentially I kind of broke it down into three dynasties. They had the 1910s and early 1920s, and then they had the 1920, late 1920s into all of the 1930s, uh, and then they had the 1970s, right? And it, it's impressive to think that they have won nine national championships and have legitimate claims to eight more. Uh, and they were playing, you know, the coach back then, the coach of the University of Pittsburgh for those early championships, um was Pop Warner, right? Coach Pop Warner, who is the... So Little League football, right? Which is what you sign your kids up for uh, when they're younger, when they're like... I don't want to say toddlers. Uh, when they're in like elementary school and they play Little League football before they go to middle school and they get to play for like eighth grade football and then JV and varsity. Um, so Little Kid Little League football is named Pop Warner football because I think he created that, right? To introduce kids to the sport so that they could play and eventually develop so they could play college football. Um, so he's one of the founders of the game, right? He's one of the forefathers of the game and he coached at Pittsburgh, right? So coach pop Warner and then the coach of their rival at the time, which was Georgia tech, right? And Georgia tech won the national championship in 1917, the year that, so they spoiled uh, Pittsburgh going uh, for four straight. It was kind of like the Cowboys dynasty in the 90s where they won two, lost one, and then won another one. The team that spoiled the four straight was Georgia Tech, and they were coached by John Heisman, who is the namesake of the Heisman Trophy, which is awarded to the most outstanding football player uh, in college, right, in Division One football. So it's pretty cool, and of course we don't know what that means, really. I mean, the Heisman is certainly the most prestigious award in all of college football, but nobody really knows if it's like an MVP trophy or just like uh, the highest statistics or if it's a, a quarterback award. Uh, it, it's basically, it's, it's really a toss up. We don't know if they mean most valuable player to your specific team, as in your team benefits the most from your presence and would suffer the most from your absence. That's what MVP means. 
or MVP to the league, as in you are the best player in the league, which is hard to measure when every position does a different thing. Uh, but anyway, the Heisman is the most prestigious award in college football, and the gentleman that's named after was the coach of Georgia Tech coaching against Pop Warner at the University of Pittsburgh. So that's pretty cool. That's just a little bit of, of history there. Um, and again, a lot of those early national championships uh, were fought between the Ivy League, right? The Ivy League created football. It was invented uh, in the late 19th century, in the late 1800s, uh, by students at Harvard and Yale. They played the first game back in, I think, like 1880 or something like that. Um, and it was pretty crazy before I move on. That national championship in uh, 1917, the one that Georgia Tech stole, is the first national championship in college football by a team below the Mason-Dixon line. So football was created up north in Massachusetts, and it took, what, 30 years for a team in the south to win a national championship, which is crazy because now college football is dominated by the south, right? Uh, They have fried chicken and they have football, and they take both very seriously. Uh, But it started with Georgia Tech and John Heisman, which is pretty cool. So anyway, so I see the trophies and I, you know, I have a great time with that because I'm a history nerd. I collect those things, those memories. Um, we go to the team store, right? The apparel store because Hunter is, you know, obsessed with Pittsburgh and wants to get some Pittsburgh swag stuff. We all get as Michael Scott says in the convention. Uh, that's the name of the episode. It's one of my favorites. Uh, they, it's funny cause I'm Jerome Bettis is in that episode. Right. This it all ties back to Pittsburgh. Jerome Bettis is in the episode, the convention, which is at the beginning of season three. I think it's season three, episode two. Um, and it's, you know, they go to the convention after Jim leaves to go to uh, the other branch. I forget. Utica. Is it Utica or Nashua? Whatever. It doesn't matter. Um, and that's where he meets Karen. Rest in peace. And so they go to the convention and Jerome Bettis is there and he's like, why do they call him the bus? I think it's, I'm pretty sure it's Jerome Bettis. He said, why, why do they call him the bus? And that's what Dwight says. And Michael says, I think it's because he's afraid of flying. Uh, but anyway, it goes back to swag stuff. We all get Hunter wants to get some Pittsburgh swag. Uh, I think that Camden and Ron were shopping for him as well for Christmas or for his birthday or just because they love, <laughs> they love him. I don't know, whatever. What's that like? Right. Um, rest in peace to me. So check out the team store. It was pretty crowded and it was, you know, not that, I mean, I'm, you know, at this point triple vaxxed and, you know, I'm, I'm a healthy guy. I'm healthy as a horse, you know, um, not hung like one, but healthy as one. And, (laughs) and, you know, I felt pretty comfortable, but I was like, you know, there's too many people, not because of my COVID anxiety, just because of my regular anxiety, (laughs) you know, the, all of my different, my different levels of anxiety. So I kind of hung out uh, with Camden. He uh, was just chilling. Uh, I had a bunch of Swiss rolls in my pocket that he had put there. I don't know how I smuggled those in, but I managed. Uh, somehow I managed. And <laughs> um, where was I going with this? Oh, yeah. So then Ron uh, got, I think he got a few drinks. Like, I don't know if they were beers or water. I can't remember. It doesn't matter. Got some popcorn and we headed to our seats. I took this really great photo of them, uh, the three cut lip gentlemen walking through the tunnel down into our seats. Uh, very reminiscent of Mean Joe Green uh, and the kid that gives him a Coke. That's kind of what I thought of 
it's just a very, it's a great photo of three guys with sort of like the shadows and the highlights uh, walking through the stadium. And of course, it's Pittsburgh, so it means a lot to them. But um, we get to our seats, and of course, like I said, we're on the visitor side of this game, so we're on the UVA bench. Uh, we're probably in row, I think we're in like row three or four. Because, um, you know, Hunter is like me. If we're going to experience something, we have not only expectations, but we have, you know, our own, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? I can't even think of it. And I don't know why I just asked the universe to give me a word, but sometimes they do. You know, we, we, uh, certainly want to, uh, enjoy ourselves and we don't want to sacrifice for some things. You know what I mean? Like we'll sacrifice on maybe where we eat or, or whatever, what we drink uh, occasionally. But, you know, if, if we're going to go to the game, we're not going to have a shitty time, right? You know what I mean? We have expectations. So he gets some pretty good seats for us. And the way the field's laid out, if we're looking straight ahead, the open side of the stadium is going to be on your left, right? So that's where the rivers are, like the three rivers of Pittsburgh are on my left. Uh, it's also where the ketchup bottles are, for anyone who knows Heinz Field. And then on our right is the close end of the stadium, which I guess takes you back towards uh, like the mountains. So... The way it's set up, we're on we're the four seats on the end of the row, which is always great. Uh, and of course, secretly, I'm like, damn, I really want the end because I have long legs, right? We're we're four burly husky gentlemen, right? That's a good way to put it. Four burly husky gentlemen, and I'm the tallest of the group. And so, not only am I burly and husky like the other uh, three guys, the three musketeers, but <laughs> uh, but I have the longest legs. And, of course, that didn't happen because, you know, it, it wouldn't be a good story if it did. And the end went to Camden, who I think just wanted to be the first to escape. And then Ron was on my left. And then there's me, obviously, in the third seat. And then the fourth seat, so the one on my right, was Hunter's, right? Uh, closer to the end zone. And Great seats. Again, it was pretty cool. Uh, I will say the, the part of this story that I do want to share, uh, the reason I'm telling this story is for the people that sat behind us, right? And I don't know if, I don't know if Hunter's going to listen to this episode just because he's busy being a doctor. And I don't know if Ron's going to listen to this episode because of some, like, uh, moral obligation against it. So, <laughs> you know what I mean? He is, like, a, a, conscientious, a conscientious objector uh, to this podcast. So I don't know if Ron's going to listen to it. But Camden probably will. And so Camden will tell his father, he'll be like, Hey, Lance mentioned this. Do you remember this? And he's going to be like, fuck. Yes, I do. Um, and I talked about this in one of my, uh, many attempts at this episode and it was pretty good, but it just didn't sound the content was there, but the quality wasn't there. So this is going to be a little bit of both, but, um, so, you know, like I said, we were in the third row close to the, the stairs, right? Close to the entrance. Um, and behind us, so if I'm giving you uh, the, I've been giving a lot of clock uh, descriptions lately, like clock location descriptions, as if I'm in the military. Um, like you're at my whatever, and here's how many clicks away you are. But it, I'm gonna do it right now. <laughs> so these people had to be at my four o'clock. Um, if I'm looking straight ahead, they're at my four o'clock, and they're probably I don't know, man, like ten. 10, 15 feet away max, right? So they're pretty close in terms of seats, but they're probably a row or two back and they're at my four o'clock, so behind my right shoulder. 
And Hunter is busy. He's involved with just being present, right? Hunter is ever present because he loves Pittsburgh. He loves the Panthers. He loves uh, Coach Pat. He loves, uh, you know, uh, I was going to say Nick Patty, but I met uh, Kenny Pickett. I love Nick Patty. Um, And he just loves being there. And then Camden is like the, he is the equal but opposite inverse of this where Camden is also ever present, but because he wants to get the fuck out. Right. So he's like the, he is experiencing the same things, but for different reasons. And then there's Ron and I in the center. And we are, we are also kind of equal and opposite inverses. Uh, I think that we get to similar conclusions, but we have different ways of getting there. Uh, if that makes sense. We're very similar guys in what we think and experience, but the reason that we think and experience those things and how we get to those thoughts are very different. But I digress. So I'm, you know, I didn't look at these people, uh, or I did, but not like, I didn't give a hard look. Like I didn't give them like a full rundown. You know what I mean? I I didn't think it was necessary. Uh, I pretty much drew them in my mind and I will, I will describe that to you. Um, so the first person to speak, the first individual to speak was a gentleman that had to be in his, I'm going to say mid fifties, right? Maybe a little bit older, mid to late fifties. And he was a white gentleman, obviously. Um, I would say I could tell by his voice, but you know, there's sort of, there's like some, uh, interesting rhetoric on that online. Uh, but you, I'm just gonna be honest with you. You can, you can tell when a white guy's speaking, right? Like, you know, a white guy's voice. And there are some people of color, uh, who, you know, they have issues with people, uh, using their weaponizing their voice or the tone of their voice, uh, you know, tonality and, and whatever. And of course, you know, grammar and abonics and all that, but this isn't that right. This isn't, I'm not getting into, uh, the relationship between race, uh, ethnicity and grammar or vocal arrangement. This, this isn't that I'm telling you that I know this guy's white and he certainly sounded white. Um, like I said, mid to late, uh, fifties. And he is with, he's with his wife who I also heard speak. I assume she's also white. Uh, you can tell when a white woman's speaking, right? You may not be able to tell when, <laughs> when a white man is speaking, if it's a white man or if it's just a man and you don't know their race, but you know, when a white woman is speaking because you, you feel the shiver down your spine. Um, so she, it's obviously a couple they seem romantically involved and he is talking to a younger gentleman who I'll describe in a sec, uh, about his playing football when he was younger. He's you know, like two, three decades ago, I played a little bit of high school and college football, obviously didn't amount to anything, yada, 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 who cares, whatever. I feel like, I feel like I'm George Costanza when I say yada, yada, yada. But, you know, because he used it for everything. But, I mean, you know, this gentleman said, hey, I, I played a little bit of football back when I was younger. Uh, I did. I played great in high school, played pretty well in college. I, I assume he meant Division two or junior college. Well, there's there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, some of the best, some of my best friends and some of the greatest athletes that I know personally played Division two or lower just because that's how life works out. Right. Life is hard. Um, yeah, it's, it is expensive to be an amateur athlete, right? You actually have to, to play, you have to pay to play, which sounds, sounds like a a scheme, uh, it's going back to the pony excess and Russ Potts, but you know, you have to pay to play amateur sports and to pay for travel, for equipment, fees to participate, um, 
you know, all, all sorts of stuff. Plus you have to use your own time, sacrifice your time away from your employment. It costs a lot of money to be an amateur athlete. So nothing against that. Um, and you don't get compensated, right? Anyway, so, okay, whatever. And he's talking to this younger gentleman. Now, this younger gentleman, I have gone back and forth on how old I think this kid is. He's certainly younger than me. He is He is without a doubt younger than me. I'm going on 27, right? DMB 27. Um, this kid has to be, I'm going to say 19. I think I'm going to settle on 19, but he could be as old as 22, I think he's definitely between 19 and 22 years old, older than 18, but I think he could still technically be of college age, uh, just the way he was speaking. Uh, anyway, this, this kid was white, right? This kid was a cracker. And I mean that in the kindest way possible. Now, before I go any further, I'm going to, I'm going to take a little break right here and I'm going to talk about something that is important to me and my family. And that is the N-word. No, okay, that was a terrible transition, but it's what I'm getting into, is there is no white equivalent to the N-word, right? There's no word that you can call white people that you have to call it by its first letter because it's so offensive to the audience. You know what I mean? There's no word that has been weaponized against white people as strongly as the N-word has been weaponized against black people. Uh, you know, there's just, there's not a word that you can use that you can call or identify white people that has the same violent context with it. You know what I mean? Like there's no word that you're like, Oh, I mean people, the R word, right? Because you're not supposed to say the word related to mental capacity anymore. That's not appropriate. Um, but that's not for white people. That's for all people. You're not supposed to say the R word. Uh, People say the same thing about cunt, right? You're not supposed to call people a cunt. Uh, which I feel like when I pronounce it, I can feel the weight of the unt. You know what I mean? Like a bunt. Um, you're not supposed to say cunt, right? So people say the C word. But then there's a whole continent in Australia that calls everyone and their mother a cunt because that's just what you call things down there. Uh, which <laughs> It's like how everyone used to call everything gay back in like the, the 90s and early 2000s. Like, man, that's gay, dude. Um, that's like what cunt is for Australia. That being said, back to what I was saying, there's no word for an uh, for another race. I'm not going to count the the Jewish ethnicity because, you know, it, the Jewish identity is kind of it, it's an ethno race, right? Because it's not there are black Jews, right? Like Lenny Kravitz or Slash. Um, there are black Jews certainly, but most people associate Jews with people of Judah, you know, people of Judah or of Jerusalem, people of Israel, you know what I mean? People of uh, the Levant, right? People of the Levant in the Middle East are Jews uh, because that's the kingdom of Judah, right? That's King Solomon. Everyone knows about that. King David. Um, So it's kind of like a race because that is their identity, uh, but it's also an ethnicity as well. And I think most people, when they say someone's a Jew, they don't hate when someone is anti-Semitic, I don't think it matters what race you are. They just, they just hate you because you're Jewish. If that makes sense, right? They're, they're equal opportunity bigots. Um, so I'm not going to get into the complexities of that, but I'm just saying that in, in most, in, and there are words that you cannot call, um, people of Jewish origin, Jewish ethnicity. There is one word in particular, uh, that you can't use that I'm not going to, I'm not going to say it. 
but in most circumstances, there is not a word similar to the N-word, right? Where especially one race in particular can't say it towards that race. You know, with, with other races, there are offensive terms, like I, like I was talking about Jewish people. There's a term that no race should use against Jews. Uh, but in terms of the N-word, it's mostly white people should not use it against black people, right? My point is there's not really a word like that for white people. Just regular, and when I say white people, I mean white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. I mean wasps, right? If you're a wasp, if you're, you know, an Anglo-Saxon, um, a, a white American, there's not really anything that can be said that is that offensive to you. Because you rule the world, right? You're a piece of shit white person that rules the world, as they, as they say. Uh, <laughs> Uh, that was that was a joke. That was a political satire, just so everyone knows. Um, but you know what I mean? There's no like, oh, there's that well-to-do white guy. You know what I mean? Like, okay, they're just going to go take all your rights away in Congress, so maybe you shouldn't offend that guy. That's just how it be. However, in the South, you know, when I say the South, I mean below the Mason-Dixon line, especially in Appalachia, there is a word that is very commonly used in the United States, by white people, by all people in the United States, and in other cultures and societies around the world, to describe Southern white Americans. It's kind of like how black people use the N-word for themselves, white people use this word occasionally for themselves as well, but there's a word that some people from Appalachia think is very offensive to white people, specifically Anglo-Saxon Protestants, specifically Appalachians. That word is another R word, which, you know, I could make a terrible, like, uh, <laughs> I could make a terrible Richard Pryor, Dave Chappelle type joke here about comparing those two R words and the same people, but I'm not going to, right? Because I, it's inappropriate. I'm not a comedian. I'm just a guy, right? The point is that word that I'm talking about is redneck, right? And a lot of people in Appalachia take offense to the term redneck because they view redneck in the same, like I said earlier, it's sort of like an equal and opposite inverse of the N-word, right? People that use the N-word against black people are typically rednecks. Rednecks are typically the ones that use that word against black people. And so Appalachians, specifically hillbillies, which there is a difference, hillbillies or hill folk don't like being called rednecks because there's a negative connotation to redneck. Um... And so they say redneck is the N-word for white people because it's the people that use the N-word, and that's everyone knows that's wrong. Um, all of this being said, right, that I, I do kind of abide by that. There is a time and a place where there are specific people that are rednecks, right? I'm just going to be honest with you. There are specific people that are, in fact, rednecks. There's no two ways around it but I don't say that word very often because I understand I do feel that way as well, right? I don't want to be called a redneck because I'm from the South or because I'm from Appalachia when I'm, I very much do not identify with those people. That being said, all of this to, to circle back to say, this kid was a motherfucking redneck. Like this kid was a redneck. He, he was truly, it's, it's, all of this goes back to the episode of South Park where they call people that, ride motorcycles, they ride Harley Davidson motorcycles, 
the F word, right? Again, you know, it's not a, it's not a racial term. It's not an ethnic term. It's about sexual identity, sexual orientation. There is a word that you cannot use, uh, in that regard that begins with an F, uh, and they called all those people the F word, which people use synonymously with the term gay. Uh, and they said, well, everyone who, who rides motorcycles are gay. And they're like, well, and the gay people got offended. And then motorcycle riders got offended. They're like, we're not gay. And it's like, no, it's like, well, what do you call someone who cuts you off in traffic? And they're like, oh, they're gay. And it's like, well, there you go. And, and so there's like this whole thing. There's like a joke there. I, this isn't, I, again, this isn't a comedy podcast. And this also isn't a cultural analysis or, a this isn't a rhetorical criticism of comedy podcast. I've done that before. But that is to say, this kid is a fucking redneck. And this kid, like I said, I had difficulty with his age. Was one of those kids that was God's. He was literally, he was Icarus. This kid is Icarus, right? This kid was apparently the greatest thing to ever happen to professional or uh, organized athletics since the Olympiad, right? This kid is, is. <laughs> quite literally uh, the greatest Olympian in history, right? This this gentleman, this young man is apparently like Michael Jordan, LeBron James, Tom Brady, uh, Marshall Falk, you know, like Jim Brown, Mark McGuire, Barry Bonds, Hank Aaron, uh, Michael Phelps, Serena Williams, uh, Babe Ruth, uh, you know, Caitlyn Jenner, like all put into one. This is the greatest athlete. This kid is apparently the greatest athlete in the history of mankind. He was God's chosen athlete, his chosen anointed son. But like Icarus, apparently this kid, the reason that he is not currently playing in the, the only reason he's currently not playing in the NFL is because he flew too close to the sun. That's what that's where this analogy is going. The only reason that apparently from what he was his story, the web that he was weaving, the only reason that this kid is not a the only person to win back to back Heisman trophies. Is because he flew too close to the sun and you guys know the type of people I'm talking about here, right there. And this is something I hate is people that exaggerate um, just to impress everyone. You don't need to impress everyone, right? Like. What are you, why do you need to impress everyone? Especially strangers. Are you trying to fuck this old man next to his wife? Like, why are you trying to fuck this old man? Why are you trying to impress him so much? And like, everyone says, Lance, you exaggerate. And it's like, eh, I don't necessarily exaggerate. I, I enunciate details, certain details better or louder than the rest of the story. But I don't, you know, fluff up a particular part of a story or add details to it. That being said, this kid was apparently... Craft this kid was like in Wonder Woman when Diana is crafted uh, by the hands of her mother, like in clay. She was made in clay and then Zeus put the spark of life inside of her. That was this kid, apparently, where he played football. He played, you know, Pop Warner football. He played middle school football, high school football. He was the most dominant wide receiver in the state of Pennsylvania in high school football, um, which I knew immediately was bullshit, uh, just because I know Hunter and Hunter has worked doing, uh, yeah, doing, uh, sports medicine 
uh, at a local high school and he knew about high school football in Pennsylvania and all that stuff. Um, I guess doing sports medicine is probably the right term. Uh, shadowing, performing sports medicine, whatever you want to say. So I Hunter knew a little bit about high school sports in Pennsylvania. And I just know for a fact that, you know, what, what's the chance that this kid is truly the greatest athlete of all time, right? You know what I mean? Come on now. Um, and just by stati- statistically, I knew he was lying. Uh, and, you know, apparently he was the best wide receiver in Pennsylvania, you know, high school football. And he had a bunch of college, you know, recruit uh, recruitments and a bunch of, you know, college scouts and, and eyes on him. And I guess he got hurt or injured or, you know, he flew too close to the sun or like a meteorite broke through the atmosphere. And when he was laying in bed, bathing in all of his recruitment letters and scholarship offers and reading all of these, you know, letters from Nick Saban uh, and and Kirby Smart and all those people, uh, all of a sudden this meteorite busted through his window like a rock and shattered his knee. And this meteorite literally flew from, you know, from past Mars, from the asteroid belt, past the moon, into Earth's atmosphere, into his window, and hit him in his knee and shattered his knee just because God thought that he was too powerful and too good of an athlete to go to the next level. That was like the type of story that he was telling, right? I mean, he was literally sitting there spinning this web that he is, the you know, he would have been basically the next Cooper Cup, right? Like the next, like, small, young, white, wide receiver. He would have been the next Cooper Cup, but the universe had other plans for him because he would have been too good, and they couldn't let that happen. Like God, it's sort of like God with Jesus. He created his son, you know, gift to man, and he was too powerful, and so he had to take him back. And I was like, what the fuck is this kid talking about, right? I'm sitting at this football game. It's like five, it's like five o'clock in the, in the evening. Uh, and we're watching this college football game. And this kid is telling the story, this like literally like three hour story about how, oh, I couldn't play in high school because of, of grades. I got my grades up magically. I became a genius overnight or whatever. Uh, <laughs> And then I got hurt, but then I overcame that injury. I tore both my ACLs at the same time and then had this, I went to South America and had this crazy holistic, but yet revolutionary alien surgery in Rio de Janeiro and then came back and made it to college football where, <laughs> where I, I got hit by a literal bus and it, the only thing it did was bust my ankle. You know, it's like this crazy story and I... <laughs> I'm like, what the fuck is happening? And I look over, <laughs> I look over at Ron, right? Because Camden's busy with another couple, which I'll talk about <laughs> in a sec. And of course, Hunter's involved in this game. I look over at Ron, <laughs> and Ron looks at me and is like, what the fuck? <laughs> and like, you know, this is one of those things where it's like, Lance, you have to be making this up. I'm like, no, dude, there's a witness. Like, I have a witness who is listening to this podcast. And he was like, I'm about to tell this kid to shut the fuck up because I'm tired of listening to this story. Uh, and like I said, it was like a two hour story, right? This is like a two hour story plus the hour the, the old man used. The problem was, and everyone knows this, right? So what I'm about to say, everyone can identify with. We all know people like that, right? And some people, when they meet me, think that that's me until they get to know me and realize that ridiculous shit does happen to me, right? Right. People are like, oh, Lance is that guy. And then they they see something that happens to me and they're like, 
yep, that would only happen to Lance. Never mind. Um, <laughs> so everyone knows a person like that. The problem is you have to check that person when they start, right? You have to call bullshit immediately. You have to be like, hey, before you get any further, I know that this story is fake or made up or exaggerated. Cut the shit, cut the crap, you know, you know, edit, revise, crop the story down to the truth and give me the 10 minute truthful version of this story. You have to, because once you let him go, you know, it's like you can't unring a bell. You can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. Um, once you let them go and you don't check their bullshit, they not only take that as an excuse to keep talking, they take it as an excuse to keep bullshitting you. And so, you know, you don't check them immediately on their first lie or their first fib or their first exaggeration. If you don't check them immediately, you're about to be two hours deep into Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. You know what I mean? And the problem is that, well, first off, I don't know if they just have a traditional relationship where the woman is subservient to the man, but this woman was not, I think that she was just done with their bullshit and she didn't check either of them. She didn't say, hey, shut the fuck up, we're in this game, or hey, like, I know that's not true, like, stop exaggerating, like, stop talking out your ass, or like, yeah, that's great, you know, thanks for telling us that story. She didn't say anything. She let this happen, so I knew that wasn't going to help. Uh, and the the gentleman, the older gentleman, this is the issue. Not only did he not check this young man, not only did he not stop this young man from bullshitting, he took it as, well, if this kid's going to bullshit, that must be acceptable in this social setting, in this social dynamic. Now, I'm going to go back and retroactively revise and exaggerate and fluff up the story that I told two and a half hours ago. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, And, and here's the thing. I can't. I could, I guess, technically, and it, which would have made this a better a better story. I could have theoretically turned around and told both of them to shut the fuck up, right? I could have. I've done that before, and it it feels good. It it works nine times out of ten. The tenth time is when they try to fight you, right? Nine times out of ten, people are so shocked that you would you were moved to the point of saying something that they they realize that hey, maybe this isn't worth it you know, they're going to back down. They also think, hey, if this person has the balls to say something like that, they probably also have the balls to fight you. You know what I mean? The other, the the 10th time out, out of 10 is they say, oh, this person has the balls to fight me. They don't know that I'm going to kick their ass. You know what I mean? So that's, it. it 90% is pretty successful, but that 10%, it can be a real motherfucker. So I could have theoretically turned around and said, listen, shut the fuck up. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like Dave Chappelle, but I didn't because I don't want to embarrass the cut lips, even though I think Ron would have backed me up, honestly. Uh, and Hunter just would have ignored it. Um, <laughs> but you know, I also don't want to make a scene of this game and like, you know, I'm trying to represent both, you know, university of Pittsburgh fans and Charlottesville, Virginia. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to, you know, be, be a cool, easygoing guy and just enjoy the day looking back, I probably should have said something because this guy literally took it as, he said, well, this kid just spun me a web of lies for the last two and a half hours. And because this kid just spun me a web of lies for the last two and a half hours, I feel like I have the ability 
to do the same thing to him. And so he went back and was like, yeah, like, you know, I, when I said I was pretty good in, at division two football, I mean, I was trying out for the Denver Broncos and it, and so I was trying to, in my mind, I was trying to do like, you know, like, okay. So this guy said they tried out for the Broncos. What year would this have been? Who was on this team? Because I know a lot about football, right? I'm also with Hunter who is, you know, the sports genius. He's the sports rain man, if you will. And then Ron, who is also a very intelligent gentleman. So we have like, you know, three sports gurus sitting in this row, plus Camden, uh, rest in peace. And I'm like, okay, well, we're going to figure out what year he would have tried out with the Broncos. Because if he says some dumb shit like, yeah, I, I caught passes from John Elway. I'm like, bro, you need to shut the fuck. I'm about to fight you just for saying that. Like, how dare you disrespect the great John Elway by saying that you were even close uh, to playing on his level. Like for those who don't know, John Elway was the quarterback of the Denver Broncos in the eighties and nineties. He is, you know, considered one of the greatest football, not just quarterbacks, but football players of all time. Right. John Elway is, is certainly considered in my opinion, uh, you know, he's in the conversation for top 20, I think top 10 uh, quarterbacks of all time, and just a great player all around. Uh, great, you know, personality and everything too. Really cool guy. Um, but you know, he was the quarterback for the Broncos. He eventually won a Super Bowl. Of course, Peyton Manning also played for the Broncos and won a Super Bowl too. Uh, I'm sure they had other success before Elway, but that's Elway is to me the Denver Broncos. And I wanted this guy to be like, yeah, I tried out. I, you know, I did, you know, I tried out open tryouts for the Broncos, and I got a few callbacks from the Broncos. Um, I caught passes from John Elway. I'd be like, bro, there's the only time that you would be in the same room as John Elway is if he was fucking your wife and you were in the corner, you know, jacking off and watching it, right? The only the only way that you would be in the same in the same stratosphere as the great John Elway is if you if you were being cucked by John Elway. There's no way that there's no way, right? And that's even I'll be honest and say the same thing about myself. There's no Maybe now, right? I could meet John Elway now that he is in his, what, in his late 50s? You know, maybe the same age as this guy. Uh, and he's, you know, the general manager of the Broncos. Uh, I think he's the general manager. He might be the owner. Um, and he comes to, like, Apple Blossom or something. Sure, I could meet John Elway now. But to meet John Elway in the 90s, there's no way in hell, right? That I mean, that's like meeting, again, that's like meeting Tom Brady now or meeting uh, Russell Wilson or something. It's just not going to happen. And so I was like, bro, there's no way that he's adding to, the, like, making this shit up. He's like, yeah, I tried out for the Broncos a few times. I tried out for, uh, I forget what other team he said. I want to say it was, like, the the Eagles. Because I know the Eagles did open tryouts uh, back in the day. And so he said, like, you know, the Broncos and, and then some other team. And I was like, bro, what? And we were like, bro, this is such bullshit, dude. And it got to a point where we were like, bro, we're, we're about to turn around and fight this guy just so they can shut up. And this went on for, like, three hours, right? This was, like, three hours of this 50 year old man and this like 20 year old kid just lying to each other's faces about their football prowess. Uh, and it was just, it was sickening. It was crazy. It, what, what Camden was doing this whole time <laughs> was apparently, uh, there's this woman that was at his, uh, probably about his 10 o'clock, uh, maybe about his nine o'clock, uh, a few rows over a few seats over. So probably uh, further away than this, these two guys were to us. Um, 
And apparently she was having the time of her fucking life at this game, right? Like this this woman was having the, the best day of her life. And she was we see again, it's hard to it's hard to estimate her age because of the people she was with. Uh she seemed to be in her forties, I would say early forties. Uh, which is it's hard to measure, right? Because some people in their early forties uh look like they're headed to the grave, right? They look like they're headed to the crypt. But then you have people like Ivy's mom who you know, is, was in her early forties. I think she's, I guess technically would still be in her early forties at this point. Uh, and you know, very beautiful for her age. You know what I mean? Like a good looking woman has aged gracefully. And there are people who have not aged gracefully like at all. Uh, like apparently this, apparently this kid, uh, who's only like 20 years old has not aged gracefully because God prevented him from being, uh, the world's greatest athlete. He would like, instead of representing the United States in the Olympics, this kid was so good. He would have represented the earth, in like the universal Olympics or some shit. Like that's how good this kid said he was. I was like, bro, come on now. Like I'm about to, I can, <laughs> let me, let me play any sport against you. And I, I guarantee you, I personally could beat you. Uh, anyway, so I don't know how old this woman was. I'm going to say early forties, just from what I've seen of women in their early forties. Um, and, but I couldn't tell It's one of those things where she had other girls with her that certainly were not in their forties, right? These girls were probably, maybe in their teens, early twenties, max. And you couldn't tell if she was like their mom, which is possible or an older sister, which is also possible, right? Because one of my best friends, Elaine, she has older siblings that are, I guess for lack of a better term, much older than her, right? People who have, there are couples who have different generations of kids. They have kids, they take a 10 year break and then they have other kids, uh, which is cool, right? You know, whatever, uh, no big deal. But the, the patriarch of this group, the man in this group, seemed to be even older than this woman. He seemed to be in his 60s. And we couldn't tell, and I know Camden was really focusing on this, if the older gentleman was all of their fathers the main woman's father and then the other girl's grandfather or the woman's husband. And then they had these kids together back when I guess he was still shooting swimmers or, and he could still, you know, get it up. You know what I mean? We couldn't tell where the, the relationship was, whether it was platonic or romantic or familial, I guess, which is a big word for Elmo. You know what I mean? We couldn't tell if he was, this older guy was having sex with this woman that was, we couldn't really tell what she was. And these other girls were their kids or they were all his kids. One would just happen to be older or, you know, maybe he's the grandfather. We just couldn't tell. And it, I, and, and I don't know if Camden remembers this as, as like the way I do. I don't know what's going on in his mind, but he seemed really involved in figuring this situation out. He seemed really involved in trying to, to gauge over the four or five hour period. That was the game. What the hell was going on in their family? He could not figure it out. And I couldn't figure it out either. Right. Once I, once I got off of this fucking dumbass train behind me, I got, I got, <laughs> I got off the stu- uh, the stupid bus. I flew into stupid town. Uh, <laughs> and then I got on this weird, um, ageism plane, you know, into old manville or whatever. And it's, I couldn't figure out what the hell was going on. 
And it was, it was literally like, the more I think about the people around us, we were in the twilight zone, dude. <laughs> like we were, we were literally in the twilight zone. Like what the fuck is happening around us? Uh, <laughs> which is, <laughs> which is why Hunter must've been so involved in the game, which I was involved in the game too, but like, I'm not going to ignore the, the crazy shit happening around me. Uh, <laughs> just, just flew into stupid town, huh? Uh, but anyway, that is to say we had a great time. Uh, the game was a, truly a nail biter, right? Like this game, uh, ended up being a really good one. I, I forget. I think UVA scored first and they scored the only touchdown in the first quarter, but then, uh, late in the first quarter, Pitt went on a drive. And then of course the quarter ended and the first play in the second quarter, uh, was a pit touchdown. I think it was a rush. Um, and then where else was I going with this? And so then it was pretty much back and forth into halftime. Um, I think it was like 24. I want to say it was like 24, 24 at halftime. Like it was, I think it was tied up. And then, uh, late in the game with about 10 minutes left, um, Pitt scored a touchdown and they took, I think it was a 10 point lead. And Ron was like, all right, let's get the fuck out of here. Right. There's 10 minutes left. Pitt has a 10 point lead. Uh, Pitt had just, you know, just scored with like nine minutes and like 40 seconds left. And Camden, of course, was ready to go because he doesn't really give a shit. And then I think Ron was trying to beat traffic and, you know, he was tired and he was driving us home. Right. So uh, he was certainly exhausted. And I don't really care. I'm down for whatever. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm DTF uh, down for fun. And, or down to fun. And Hunter was like, well, we paid for the whole game. We're going to stay for the whole game, even if it goes into overtime. You know what I mean? Like, Hunter is like, the ticket counts for the whole game. Why would we, you know, give up free football? And Ron was like, bro, they have a 10-point lead with 10 minutes left in the fourth quarter. It's obviously over. Well, not even 20 seconds later, UVA scores like a 45-yard touchdown. Like, they throw like a 45-yard touchdown pass. And Hunter does, you know, of course, it, it, it was funny because of the circumstance, right? It's, it's just crazy how that worked out. But it was funny that the universe gave Hunter the opportunity to do his classic, like, I told you so face, where he, like, turns really harsh, like, harshly and dramatically and raises his eyebrows and looks you dead in the pupil and then lifts his arms up and says, see, you know what I mean? He did one of, he did one of those, the classic Hunter, I told you so. And Ron was like, shit. Uh, so now that was like nine minutes and 40 seconds left. Pitt had a 10 touch or a 10 point lead. <laughs> and then 20 seconds later, the first play of the, the next drive UVA scores like a, a 40, 45 yard touchdown pass. And it's like, well, shit, dude, now it's, it's three points again. And we're like, well, okay. Like hopefully pick an answer. Cause it's one thing to say, Hey, can UVA score again? And then score after that another time you know, to take the lead, but can they shift momentum? And they did all of that in, in a matter of seconds. So we're like, well, shit. So that was nine minutes left in the, in the game. We get down to about three minutes left in the game and it's, it's still pretty close. And we're like, okay, you know, there's not really, you know, nothing against Pitt because, uh, you know, we love Pitt here, hail to Pitt, but there wasn't really good clock management, uh, which is something that is pretty difficult for some people, it seems. And so UVA could certainly get the ball back and they only needed a field goal to tie. 
uh, and a touchdown to, to go ahead. And there's like three minutes left. And we're like, well, shit, dude, like if UVA scores, then Pitt's probably not going to have enough time. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's just one of those scenarios where it's really, I always look back on Jimmy V, you know, which of course is basketball. So it's different than football, but Jimmy V was one of those, his, you know, technique or his strategy was when he got low on time and needed points, you would let the other, you would foul the other team and let them score just to shift possession, right? Sometimes you gotta, you gotta let up and let another team score, you know, a certain amount of points, obviously within reason, just so that you can get the ball back with enough time to do something to orchestrate a drive. And I, I take that uh, philosophy of Jimmy V and apply it to football, especially as a Cowboys fan, because anyone who knows the Cowboys knows that the, the true (laughs) issue in Dallas is time or clock management. They cannot coach the last two minutes of a football game to save a life. Now, sure, both Tony Romo and Dak Prescott have the most, you know, fourth quarter or overtime comeback victories in the last two decades, right? That's great, you know, it, it, but of course the game shouldn't be that close that late. But that's also to say I think the Cowboys also have the most losses in the fourth quarter or later in the last two decades as well. Uh, because it truly, they get to, they get to points where there's like, you know, 30 seconds left in the game and either they have a miraculous drive that either takes them to overtime or gives them the win or they choke. And it's because they didn't manage the clock well enough. Uh, so, you know, Pitt's like, Oh shit, dude, like we didn't manage the clock well enough. Well, I don't know what happened. I don't know if there was a turnover or what, but Pitt got the got the ball back with like two minutes, like two minutes and thirty and thirty seconds left. So it was like you know thirty seconds went by. UVA didn't do nothing. The ball changed hands. I don't know if it was a turnover or not, but there was like two and a half minutes left, and Pitt scores. I think it was like a 60, 61 or sixty two yard touchdown pass from Kenny Pickett to uh, Jordan Addison, which of course he was you know wide receiver of the year in college football. Uh, and Kenny Pickett should have won the Heisman, but, you know, rest in peace, he didn't. Uh, it'd be like that. So, you know, with with two minutes left, they have this 60-yard touchdown pass. Uh, they, you know, stretch the lead back to 10 points, and that's the game, right? So the game ends. It's 48-38, to 38, spoiler alert. 48-38, uh, uh, Pitt, I think Kenny had like 300 and something yards, four touchdowns, and they were all to Addison. Um, and two interceptions, the kid for, uh, UVA, his name was Brennan, Brennan Scott or something like that. I forget what his, his last name is. Uh, Brennan something. He had like 500 yards and three touchdowns, which is a hell of a game dude. to have like 500 passing yards and three touchdowns. I don't know if he had any turnovers, but still that's a great game. He had a higher completion percentage and higher quarterback rating than Kenny. But, of course, Kenny had four passing touchdowns uh, to uh, Addison, so he kind of made up for it. So it was a great game. Um, after the game, of course, we got the fuck out of Dodge, right? You got to get the hell out of Dodge. Uh, left the game. We did stop at uh, Firehouse Subs on the way back from Pittsburgh to Clarksburg. Uh, we had a nice dinner uh, there, you know, had some subs, got some got some beverage, of course, because... I was thirsty, and that's all I can think about right now is is a nice crisp soda. Um, and so we had dinner. 
we got back to the place. Uh, I guess Camden went home or to his apartment and that was it. We called it a day, dude. It was, a, it was a great day. I think we watched a little bit of football, um, when we got back, but eventually, you know, we went to sleep or whatever. Uh, the next day we woke up the next morning we woke up, thankfully, thank God for that. Um, and we had some pepperoni rolls, which is a West Virginia staple, right? It's a West Virginia classic, uh, pepperoni rolls from a, a local bakery that had recently experienced like a shooting. I think someone like cut in line. And so someone pulled out a rifle and shot them. Uh, cause you don't cut in line, dude. They take pepperoni rolls very seriously, right? There are two things in West Virginia that they take very seriously. That's pepperoni rolls and poverty. All right. And so you don't mess with either of those or you will get shot. Uh, <laughs> so yeah. And of course it's funny cause I'm going to obviously throw her under the bus, but Riley was there, but she was like too shy or too awkward to introduce herself to me. Uh, which is hilarious because you would think Camden would be that way, but Camden has been kicking my ass at fantasy sports for the last five years, uh, like over a span of the last five years. So he was pretty much comfortable with me because he's, he's, you know, been dominating me, uh, online. So that's cool. But yeah, I always thought it was funny because like, and like, I get it. Like, you know, I was young once and, uh, I mean, I'm still young, but I was younger once I was, it's kind of awkward. I never had any siblings, obviously. Thank God for that. Um, but it's just, it's funny. Like you have this guy, this strange guy that you haven't met before staying in your house, sharing your bathroom, uh, who is, you know, your older brother's age and you're like, you know, a college age girl. I get how that's awkward. You know, I, like I've read books before I've, I've watched TV before. I get how it's awkward. Uh, but I just thought it was fucking funny. Right. Cause I'm like the least awkward guy in the world. I get into awkward situations, but me personally, I don't make things awkward because life is just wild and it should be. So I always thought that was funny. She didn't introduce herself to me. So she's at the bottom of the list. Rest in peace. Um, and yeah, we went, we, <laughs> we moved a couch, right? We, we pivoted and, and moved a couch like in friends. And then we, we headed back home and that was pretty much the trip. Uh, we talked about some crazy stuff on the way back to, uh, to Winchester, mostly about like medicine and different crazy conditions people can have. And, development of, of, you know, human embryo and fetuses, um, you know, disabilities and like how disability exists in society. Um, talked about, you know, different surgery, different procedures, different, uh, operations of the body. We talked about kidneys and how they work. And yeah, it was a great time. So, wow. I'm actually surprised this, we're about, uh, an hour and 42 minutes in and I finished the story. Holy shit, dude. That's like the fastest I've ever told a story in my entire life. Oh my God. Um, so yeah, that's, that's it. I, I'm going to wrap up this story and then take a break and then wrap up the episode, which is again, holy shit, dude. I mean, it's going to be two hours, but still it's not going to be like a, a long two hours. Um, to wrap up the story, I do obviously want to say thanks to the cut lips, right? Like I want to say thanks certainly to Hunter right? Because Hunter is, is my best friend. He's my brother. He's been there for me and with me, uh, through a lot of, a, a lot of hardships, right? All the things that I mentioned in the first 20 minutes of this episode, Hunter has been right by my side through all of them. I mean, he's, he's one of the only people that has been right by my side through all of those things. And I wouldn't have made it through a lot of those things if it wasn't for him, truly. I mean, he is, he saved my life more times than I'd like to admit. Um, and he's the, he's the person I go to 
when I feel like I, I can't save my own life. And that's, you know, that's not a burden that you should put on anyone. It's not a burden that I, I want to put on anyone. But he he has rescued me when I have needed it and when I didn't think I deserved it. And that's what that's why I know he's going to be a great doctor. Because his empathy and his compassion and his ability and his willingness to help people is is unmatched, truly. Uh, he's, he's one of, if not the, the greatest men I've ever met. And so, you know, obviously I want to thank Hunter for our friendship and for this specific experience, the Pittsburgh special, of course. Uh, I do want to thank his family, uh, obviously his parents and his siblings uh, for creating a great gentleman and a great friend of mine, but also being kind and generous and welcoming to me, right? I, I want to thank Hunter's family for, you know, opening their home uh, to me, opening their <laughs> opening their their bedrooms and their bathrooms to me uh, and allowing me to play with all of your uh, potions and elixirs in the, in the shower um, and feeding me and giving me a place to uh, rest my head at night. That is very important to me as someone who has gone without those things in life. Those are very important to me and I, I appreciate them. Um, so shout out to, to them. Of course, shout out to, uh, to Camden for, you know, putting up with my shit. Uh, it's great to spend time with you in person. And again, so, you know, shout out to them and shout out to Pitt, right? This couldn't have done this without Pitt. So hail to Pitt. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. I get, you know, giving a, a blanket of thanks. This is, I'm a hugger, right? Everyone knows I'm a hugger. Uh, I don't believe in the love language thing because my love language is every love language. Uh, but I am big on physical touch and physical affirmation. So this is me extending a hug virtually or through the interwebs. This is, this is my hug from me to you, the cut lips. Uh, so thank you. I have a lot of love and respect for you. So, all right, I'm going to take a quick break, get a drink, and I'll be right back so we can wrap this up like a condom. All right, so I love you all very much. I'll be right back. Peace. And we're back, or I'm back, or or whatever. We're back. And we're at uh, about an hour and 45 minutes, almost an hour, 46 minutes. And I, <laughs> I would have never guessed in my life I could have gotten this episode done in the two hours, right? Two hours for me seems impossible. Two hours for me seems like three minutes to a teenager, if you catch my drift. And <laughs> it just doesn't seem like I can finish in, two, in under two hours, uh, which, you know, again, go see my doctor. Um, so where, what do I want to do? Where do I want to go from here, right? That's sort of, you know, it's where we've been, where we are, where we're going, as Jimmy V says. Um, may you rest in peace. And... I, I do want to talk a moment, I guess, about the future of Late Nights with Lance, right? As you guys have seen or noticed, I've rebranded in terms of uh, a new cover image, right? A new profile image, I guess, um, which has a new tagline, Waste Your Time with Lance Wines. I thought that was pretty clever. Um, so where are we going to go from here? And I think that Late Nights with Lance can really be divided into two types of episodes, Right. There is the long narrative episode. This is the first type, right? Type A. The long or I should actually let me call this type B, uh, just to match the personalities. So there's the type B uh episode where it's a long narrative. 
and it's very detail oriented. It's very fact heavy. It's very, uh, it, it goes in chronological order typically, and it tells a long story. And these episodes are typically, um, the telling of the story is just as long as the actual story itself, right? So me on the podcast, me on the air is actually as long <laughs> or seems as long relative to the event itself. So, you know, the Pittsburgh special was 24 hours, uh, you know, essentially 24 hours one day, and I divided it into three two-hour podcasts, so about six, almost seven hours of content, right? So I, it was one day that took me, you know, I, I say almost, you know, a third of a day to describe, you know what I mean? Like, it took me almost one third of the entire day just to describe what happened in that day. Uh, that's a long narrative, right? That's a long narrative episode, which is detail oriented, uh, fact heavy. And it's sort of, you know, it's biographical in nature. That's type B type A is the one that gets the most interactions. Type A are episodes that match the type A personality, which is, you know, mostly what I am is very, um, anecdotal, right? Whereas the other one is, is narrative. This is more anecdotal. It's a short story that is emotion heavy. It's very, it's more emotion forward, emotion heavy, and it is more react reactionary, right? So whereas the other one is I'm telling a story, here's what happened. Here's the who, what, when, where, how, and why of the world, right? Um, this, the type A is more, hey, here's a quick instance that something happened to me. And it's not necessarily all about what happened to me. It's about my reaction to it and why I'm reacting that way. So it's more uh, cause and effect or stimulus and reaction based. And those are typically more successful because they're more exciting, right? Like the whole you know, I'm just going to go with this example, uh, you know, like Ivy coming into the store, right? I'm not going to spend eight hours describing every single minute detail of the Gateway ABC store and every detail of what I was wearing, what I was doing, what Ivy was wearing, what she was doing. I'm not going to spend eight hours talking about every detail to paint you a vivid picture of what happened, but I will spend you know, I, I will spend, you know, an hour or two or even three talking about my reaction to that happening, that instance occurring and why I reacted the way I did and how I tend to how I intend to move forward. That's the that's the anecdotal uh, episode. The narrative episode is I'll sit here for six, seven, eight, maybe even 10 hours and paint you every single vivid detail of a story so that you can live it and experience it with me as if I'm taking a photograph from that day and then photoshopping you into it as if you experienced it with me at that time. Those are the two types of episodes of Late Nights with Lance. And if you have a disagreement about that, again, I'll tell you where to put the disagreement because that's the perfect description of the show. And the first type, type A, is more exciting. It's more like I said, reactionary, and it's more how people perceive me. That's how people perceive me. 
that don't know me as well. They see the reactionary lance, and that's the lance that they think is the entire picture, and they like those episodes because I'm very unusual. I'm very unique of a person, and my reactions, my experiences are unique, and my reactions to those experiences is also or are also unique, right? The people that truly know me, the people that know me very well, intimately, if you will, know me as the as the type B, where they know me as the one that if you get me started on something, I will not shut up about it. I'll be like Icarus flying too close to the sun. I just won't shut up about it. And I will go into detail because detail to me is the most important thing, right? The most important thing in the world is detail. And if you can master detail and if you can pay attention to detail and if you can be attuned to detail, you can truly live a beautiful, well-examined life. And those episodes aren't as exciting. And so the audience that doesn't know me as well, they don't really care for those episodes, right? It's funny because it's it should almost be the opposite. The people that don't know me should like the narrative episodes because that would mean that they get to know me, but they don't want to know me, right? They don't want to get to know me. They want to continue to paint the same picture uh, that they have of me in their mind. They just want to keep painting over it with the same image. Whereas the people that do know me very well often should and do like the reactionary episodes because they like to see my growth, right? They've seen my life. They are active participants in my life. They often experience these things in first person, you know, live as they are occurring. And they like to see how I reflect on my reactions to see if I've actually learned or grown in any capacity, right? They like to see, hey, has Lance experienced any growth as as an individual? And so the people that know me intimately, they don't need the detail, even though that's what they know me for. They have the detail already because they were there or they got it as it was happening. They want the reaction so they can see if I'm a better person. And the other people look at it completely differently. It's kind of weird how that works, right? Again, opposite opposite inverse. Um, so those are the two episodes, the two types of episodes. So what does that mean? Well, the next episode is going to be very in-depth. I think that my plan is to take a break from these long, long narrative-style in-depth episodes but still go into one that's that's more intimate and uh, emotion heavy. And it's going to be uh, either a list of my favorite songs or my favorite albums and why they are important to me. Right. So it's going to be I'm going to go and list either my top 10 favorite albums or top 20 favorite songs. And I'm going to explain why they are significant and what they mean to me. And that's just sort of a, a not necessarily a filler episode, but something that doesn't require a lot of living. Uh, and then after that, I'm going to jump into the MCU saga, which is what I teased uh, last year. It's going to be going. It's going to be like the DMB saga where I go through. Uh, I'm going to rank all of the MCU materials. And, you know, I do say materials because it's not just films anymore. There's the WandaVision show and the other shows as well. Um, so I'm going to go and personally rank the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe, then I'm going to split that up into either three or four uh, core groups, depending on what I think is more manageable per episode, how many I can get through in one episode, and then dedicate an episode to each group in that ranking from lowest ranking to highest ranking, right? From least favorite 
to most or absolute favorite. So that's probably going to take three or four episodes. It's going to be more, uh, it's going to be intimate, but it's also going to be detail oriented, uh, and, and fact heavy. It is going to be a type B, uh, saga, just like the DMV saga, but it's going to have a good mixture of emotion like the DMV saga did as well. And now you're probably like, well, where is all the reactionary stuff? Where's the fun material, right? I, I don't plan that material. I don't plan for this shit to happen. It just does, right? You can't plan for success. It just happens. And so, you know, I can't plan for another run-in with Suki. I can plan for another drag bingo down at 50-50, uh, you know, the last Friday of every month. But I can't plan for he to, her to be there, and I can't plan for another run-in with her. Uh, I can't plan for Ivy to come visit me in the store, even though I would, I wish I could. Um, you know, I can't plan for bullshit to happen to me. Bullshit just finds me. I'm like the ground and bullshit just drops right on me. You know what I mean? So their reactionary episodes, I'm sure there's going to be some in there. There's no way I could get through, uh, you know, four or five straight type B episodes and not have something happen to me to make a type A episode somewhere in between those. That's what happened with the Pittsburgh special. The Pittsburgh special was going to be three type B episodes and it got distracted by like four or five type A episodes. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's just life. So I can't plan for any type A episodes, but that shit just happens. And then by the time I get done with the MCU saga and whatever bullshit comes my way, it'll be about time for the bar results. So that's probably going to be another type A episode. Hopefully it goes well, obviously. And then after the bar results, we're going to get into concert season. So immediately following the bar results, I'm going to go see the Lumineers, uh, which is super exciting. Uh, again, open invite to uh, the one who stole me away. <laughs> uh, and, you know, that wouldn't that be nice? And uh, after the Lumineers, obviously the Dave Matthews Band tour starts, and I'm going to be able to add to the DMB saga. But then after the Lumineers, after bar results, we're going to the beach. Right, we're going to the motherfucking beach, dude. The Island Boys. Uh, so those are going to be some Type A and Type B episodes mixed together. Uh, that's the future of of Late Nights with Lance. The immediate future. It's lots to be excited about. Um, you know, a lot to be desired. A lot to be uh, excited about. So that's pretty much it. I might actually finish this within two hours. Uh, it's we're at about one hour and 50, 58 minutes. So again, I just want to say thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening, for caring about my life in any way, any capacity. Thank you for being a fan. Thank you for being a friend. And and I love you dearly from the bottom of my heart, you know, a bushel and a peck. Uh, and I'll be seeing y'all, you know, I'll be seeing you when I'm seeing you. Uh, so this has been another humble episode of Late Nights with Lance. I'm your host, Lance Gunner Wines. All right, I'm a fuck with you.